When I hear the word strategy, I think of two things. I think about the general direction that the company needs to go into. So again, for Merck, we aspire to be the premier R&D-based biopharmaceutical company in the world. But that's not a strategy. That's an aim, right? You have to develop a simple, clear, consistent, understandable plan to get from where you are to where you want to be. And so when I hear the word strategy, what it often makes me think about is, okay, you know, where are we going to go and how are we going to get there? From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard Ken Frazier, former CEO and executive chairman of Merck, the global pharmaceutical company. During his 11 years as CEO, Ken exemplified a leader whose day-to-day decisions were very closely aligned with the corporate purpose and values. This is the third interview in our Voices of CEO Excellence series. We'll include links to our previous interviews with Morgan Stanley's James Gorman and with Blackstone's Stephen Schwarzman in the show notes. In this episode, Ken shares how his experience growing up during the civil rights movement helped shape his approach to leadership, how he ensured that science stayed at the core of Merck's mission, and how he developed his leadership team. Ken spoke with senior partner Vic Malhotra, co-author of the New York Times bestseller, CEO Excellence, and with Steve Van Kuyken, former senior partner and global leader of our technology transformation practice. Their wide-ranging conversation has been split into two episodes. Now here's Vic to kick off our first. Well, Ken, thank you for being here. It's a real privilege and honor to have you as part of our CEO Excellence podcast series, and uh, we really do appreciate the time. Thank you for having me, and thank you for including me with a group of CEOs who are excellent. I hope to hold up my end. Uh, You certainly (laughs) will. I have no doubt about it. (laughs) Let's start. Perhaps we can just go back to your background leading up to being the CEO. You often talked about your humble roots in Philadelphia growing up, the schools you had the good fortune to be able to go to, your journey as a lawyer. What were some of the key lessons learned through that journey leading up to joining Merck uh, that then informed how you uh, led in, in corporate America? So I believe that most of us are products of our background. And I think that's certainly true of my life. I was born and raised in the inner city of Philadelphia in the 50s and the 60s. The world was changing a lot. It was during the civil rights movement. Uh, I was born in 1954, which was the year in which the Brown versus Board of Education decision was rendered. And that had an impact on my life, to be, to be honest. I am the eighth of my dad's nine children. My younger sister and I came along at a time when the social engineers in Philadelphia were engaged in what they then called school desegregation, uh, which is not the integration of schools, mm-hmm. but it was an attempt to ensure that some black children from the inner city were put on buses and sent to schools in the white areas, to be blunt. And as a result of that, while as a kid I hated it because obviously my friends and my siblings were all going to the neighborhood school, looking back at that, that was one of the most important things that ever happened to me in my life because the quality of the education in the schools to which I was bused was significantly higher than the ambient standard in the local schools. And it's become a real driver of how I've thought about myself and my role in the world because obviously my parents couldn't afford real estate that was proximate to where the good schools were. 
And it was only because of social policy that I got an opportunity. So a big part of what I've tried to think about in my life is how do you provide opportunity to people who otherwise would not have opportunity? I think our society has a real challenge in that regard. I think the challenge on the one hand is how do you reward and recognize achievement, which we want to do, but at the same time provide equal opportunity. And those two things sometimes, unfortunately, are viewed as somewhat inconsistent. I went off to college and uh, then to law school. And after law school, I came back to my hometown of Philadelphia to practice law in a very large law firm, became a partner in that law firm, but spent a lot of my time doing civil rights work as opposed to the typical work that large firms do, death penalty work, uh, voting rights work, things of that nature. I taught law school in South Africa for four semesters during apartheid. So those were things that also shaped my views of the importance of our society and what makes our society so unique, which is a series of values that we believe in as, as Americans. And, the, and these values that, uh, that you so eloquently talk about clearly translated into when you, when you got to Merck, you were, you were at Merck for almost 20 years before you became CEO, I think, if I've got my math right. These values clearly translate into how you acted both during your time as an executive, as chief legal counsel, and then eventually as CEO. I'd like to think so. The reason why I joined Merck, besides the fact that my wife, who was a legal headhunter, directed me to, to join Merck, was that I'd never thought about working for a company. I loved being a lawyer. I liked the commitment to social justice, to justice generally. And when I got to know Merck, and I had represented Merck for years, what I found was great about Merck was its mission was similar. You know, I was focusing on legal justice. They were much more focusing on alleviating human suffering. And so I saw a parallel in terms of the values that Merck had and the values that I tried to support as a lawyer. Wonderful. Let's jump forward to the moment you became uh, CEO at Merck uh, and to explore this whole notion of CEO excellence, which you very much have defined. I came to work for Merck in the early 1990s. The CEO at that time was Roy Vagelos, who was an icon, obviously. And my first two and a half years were his valedictory two and a half years. And I worked directly for him. And my role was running what we called public affairs, which was the external relations part of the company. And a big part of what I did was write for Roy, was to try to put into writing what he thought was Merck's salient purpose in the world. And so I couldn't imagine a better preparation for one day becoming CEO than working for him at the beginning. But there were two CEOs between us, Ray Gilmartin and Dick Clark. And Dick Clark was a great supporter of mine. In fact, when I ceased being general counsel, Dick gave me the responsibility for running the marketing and sales, the commercial organization globally, which I think gave me the operating experience that I needed in order to become a CEO one day. Excellent. How did you, in that moment of transition in the early days as a CEO, think about the vision and direction of Merck that you wanted to see? If you'd look forward, how did you think about the vision and direction that you wanted to take Merck in? 
It's an interesting question, and I got asked that when I became CEO, when in the lead up to being CEO, reporters and analysts would say, Ken, what's your vision for Merck? And I would respond honestly, the last thing Merck needs is Ken Frazier's vision for Merck. Merck had been around for 125 years. It had a very clear mission and purpose. In fact, uh, the CEO of Merck, uh, George W. Merck, in the early 1950s was on the cover of Time magazine when Merck was a fairly obscure company because he gave a speech at a medical school graduation in Virginia in which he said, medicine is for the people, not for the profits. Every Merck employee knows that quote by heart. And every Merck employee believes in that quote. And so when I became the CEO of Merck, what I felt my job was to ensure that I was a guardian of the longstanding values and purpose that the company had around scientific excellence and around translating that cutting edge science into medically important therapeutics and vaccines. So when I became CEO, I did not think Merck needed me to define a course for it. Uh, We had had a fallow period for about 10 years in terms of R&D. And I think the outside world was questioning companies that were committed to R&D. So my job wasn't to establish a purpose. It was to reconfirm a purpose. And Ken, could you talk about how you kept the company's focus on that? Because you say it, it seems obvious now, but at the time that was not a very obvious conclusion. The Wall Street was very down on R&D. Can you talk about how you made that decision and how you brought the organization along with you as a new CEO? You're right, Steve. I, I remember, and I still have it in my, my papers, an influential uh, Wall Street analyst report from one of the big banks. And the headline was, in order to create value, uh, pharmaceutical CEOs should stop investing in R&D and invest in non-pharma assets. That was a common view. They said, we don't believe in uh, science, we believe in management. And so when I became the CEO of Merck, um, you know, Merck had five-year earnings guidance, of which only two of those five years had elapsed when I took over. And some of the other companies were cutting R&D at the time. And Street expected me to cut R&D. And in fact, if I was going to stay on that earnings roadmap, I had to cut R&D in a way that I thought was large and indiscriminate. So I think it was 25 days in the the job, I, I called a telephonic board meeting to tell the Merck board that I intended to withdraw the next three years or the remaining three years of the, the guidance. You can imagine that was not exactly a popular idea when I first announced it to the board. There was some resistance. But I felt very strongly that if Merck was going to be an R&D-focused company, this was the moment of truth for us. We could always say we are a science-based company. That has a enormous rhetorical appeal. But ultimately, what matters is whether or not you're going to be in the science and in the R&D with a long-term view, or whether or not you're going to actually do what may be more acceptable to your uh, investors in the short term. And so uh, we made the decision then to withdraw the guidance. The stock got hit pretty hard in the immediate aftermath. Uh, But looking back on it, it was the right thing to do in terms of reestablishing or reconfirming that we are an R&D-based company. But it also turns out that 
the people who bought the stock during the sell-off were people who believed in that strategy. So without planning for it, I actually ended up with the right investor base for a company like Merck. So your vision in many ways, the vision for the company, which was always based in its purpose and its, its mission, played out in, the, in a huge recommitment, uh, recommitment to R&D. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I understand why people didn't think that was the right way to run those companies, because I mentioned Merck had gone through about a decade of a sort of rather fallow period in terms of R&D productivity. The whole industry had gone through that. The challenge in this industry is that if you're in the business of looking for true breakthroughs, transformational medicines and vaccines, they don't happen on a regular cadence, right? They happen sporadically and they're really spread out. So if you're looking at a 10-year period, for example, or a five-year period, you may not see the progress. And yet if you look at Merck's history, through that history, there's always been important breakthroughs, and it's because we stayed committed to the science. Yeah, yeah. Now, talk to me a little bit how, as the CEO, you thought about resource allocation broadly writ. Clearly a big commitment to R&D, so that's a lot of capital dollars and expense dollars going into R&D. A lot of talent, if I think about resource allocation as capital, expenses, and talent, you're putting a lot into that. But you also talked about how in that first year, while you were making these big commitments, you were also having to deal with productivity. Absolutely. We needed to be committed to R&D for the long run. But someone once said to me, the long run is composed of a series of short runs. Mm -hmm. And you had to manage to those short runs, right? And so at the same time, we were not willing to make large and indiscriminate cuts in the R&D budget. We still, given what was happening in the company, it's my first five years, revenue actually declined which is not an easy way to manage a company. So we made the decision, or I made the decision, that we needed to take out a significant amount of money from our expense base. And that was probably the hardest thing that I ever had to do as CEO of Merck, because that implied laying off many people, more than 10,000 people. Uh, These were loyal, committed, hardworking Merck people who deserved better. Um, But we needed to do that uh, in order to be able to invest in R&D and also to be able to keep our investors willing to continue to give us the capital necessary to do the long-term R&D play that we wanted to do. So we took about $3 billion of cost out of the base, and the human toll of that was great. On the other hand, when I look back at that period, we were able to be very successful with a drug called Keytruda for cancer malignant disease across many different forms. If we hadn't freed up that capital, we would not have been able to invest the way we were able to do for a product like Keytruda. Ken, can I ask, as you think about resource allocation, you also led Merck through a period of immense change for the healthcare industry. Massive policy changes, a digital revolution, lots of changes in the distribution model. How did you navigate that external environment at the same time you're trying to stay true to the strategy and the vision of Merck? It's a great question because I started off talking about maintaining the cultural heritage of Merck. But it's also critical to be adaptive to what's happening in the outside world. And the outside world was changing. Uh, You talked about the digital change. 
I would say the pharmaceutical industry was one of the last places to actually take that on very seriously. At Merck, we decided that it was a critical part of our strategy, and my successor, Rob Davis, has that as a critical part of what he's going to get done over the next few years. In terms of healthcare financing, enormous pressure. I chaired the industry association pharma for years as we tried to engage Congress around a sensible approach to thinking about how society should pay for healthcare. I mean, we know more than 20% of the GDP is spent on healthcare. I think people began to understand for the first time that drug pricing, and we haven't talked about drug pricing up until now, is not just a simple question of what the pharmaceutical companies charge, but also how the actual distribution system works. And we had to work very hard to help, you know, patients and physicians and regulators understand all the sort of misaligned incentives that exist in the the pharmaceutical system. You know, our net discounts are like 45% uh, across our product line. Most people don't understand what a significant amount of money goes back into the supply chain in this industry. It's something that we needed to work on, and we have at least gotten people to understand it. And I think at some point, I'm hoping that a bunch of rational people sit at a table and say, how do we want to run the system for the benefit of patients? Maybe one last set of questions on the whole strategy front before we move to... We use the word strategy, and I I find that to be the the most ambiguous word in all of business, right? (laughs) Say more. (laughs) Right? Everybody uses it, but I think they have different conceptions or definitions of what the word means, right? For me... When I hear the word strategy, I think of two things. I think about the general direction that the company needs to go into. So again, for Merck, we aspire to be the premier R&D-based biopharmaceutical company in the world. But that's not a strategy. That's an aim, right? You have to develop a simple, clear, consistent, understandable plan to get from where you are to where you want to be. And so when I hear the word strategy, what it often makes me think about is, okay, you know, where are we going to go and how are we going to get there? And that's what those words mean to me. And that's what we really tried to get to be abundantly clear for everybody in the company, no matter what their job was. Right. In the context of the where we want to go and how we want to get it done, how did you work with the organization to get these decisions made? How much did you involve the board? How much did you involve, how, how involved was your team? What are the decisions where you sometimes just said, no, you know what, everyone may think this, but we've got to go in this alternative direction? Well, let me start with the last part, because okay. you know, I've thought about this a lot, and, and over the course of about 11 years, I believe there were only five times when I had to make a decision that would not have been the consensus decision anyway. I had a really good team, and I want to talk about the team, and I always believed in consulting the team and making decisions. I think a lot of times CEOs believe mistakenly that you have to be the smartest person in the room, the most decisive person in the room. I found most of the time it was extremely helpful for me to be the last person to speak to an issue rather than the first person because listening was a key part of what I needed to do. But there were five decisions during my 11 years where I had to go counter to what 
the team might have done, what the board might have done, what shareholders wanted. And in those five instances, it was a question of whether you really were committed to the long-term pursuit of the company's mission. And I made those decisions around, okay, if we're really committed to this mission for the long term, uh, we would do something that wouldn't be maybe the right thing for the short term or the popular thing right. to do. Right. So you've got to look past the near term earnings issues or whatever it might be to pursue that long term goal. Sometimes. Again, right. I go back to what I said. The long term is composed of a series of short terms. So right. you can't just say to investors, wait forever and we'll, we'll deliver something. But, but from time to time, there is a trade-off, a real trade-off. If you're going left, you're going after something that's positive in the short term, but it will preclude you from being who you are in the long term. If you say to your colleagues, we're going to be about R&D, and you cut your R&D budget in a significant way, then you lose credibility. You lose trust with the scientists. And one of the most important decisions I had to make was to bring in Roger Perlmutter, who became our head of research. And he had been a very successful head of R&D at Amgen and had retired to his wonderful house in Santa Barbara, California. And I was asking him to come back to beautiful Rawway, New Jersey, <laughs> and do the same job again. And, you know, he ultimately agreed. But he also said to me, if you had not demonstrated through those actions your fundamental commitment to R&D, why would I come and why would I recruit a bunch of people who roll up their, have to roll up their sleeves and do a turnaround? Because it's not going to be overnight that you're going to turn around an R&D organization. So it really does help in the long run to stay committed to those things. And Ken, can I just, uh, just linking back to Vic's question, when you made these five consequential decisions, where did you seek counsel? Because you were going against the grain. So how did you get comfortable that these were the, this is where you had to take a stand? And, and we would happily take any examples if you were willing to share any of those five examples. So the first one we've already talked about, withdrawing guidance. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, that one was one that I didn't really need to make a lot of phone calls or call a lot of people, because that was really fundamentally, are you going to stay committed to your own mission? But there were a number of other ones. So I'll, I'll talk about the, the, commitment, the commitment we made to Keytruda. When Keytruda was coming along, we were originally behind a competitor and fairly far behind a competitor. And our investors thought major investment in this, in this compound wasn't worth it because we would never catch up. But in that case, I consulted with the folks at our R&D organization, Roger, a guy named Roy Baines, who were running that project. You know, it's interesting when you talk about, we talked about resource allocation inside a pharma company. And often my investors would say, how do you make the specific decisions? Well, the reality of the world is I didn't. I made those decisions because I trusted the people who were in charge of the R&D enterprise, right? I didn't pick the peptides or the proteins that we were going after. I'm a lawyer by training. I'm not a scientist by training. So in every one of those decisions, I would go consult. Often I would go to talk to Roy Vagelos, who's still around, and ask his opinion, or Dick Clark, or Fred Hassan, who had run Sharing Plow. So having a kitchen cabinet of experienced leaders 
who have knowledge of the genre, so to speak, was something that I found to be very helpful. Interesting. Let's talk about how you took what was a strong culture, continued to evolve it and shape it. I would love to hear your views in terms of where you took it and how your team was critical to being part of that and where you see it today and where it might go. So I would say, first of all, leadership in a company like Merck is definitely a team sport. When a company is successful, CEOs get a lot of credit, but they get credit for what I call the big moments, the big breakthrough over here. But the leadership is in a lot of the small moments and the quiet moments with the team. It's getting the team organized, assembling the the right kind of talent, and then figuring out how we're gonna work together to create value for all of our stakeholders. So a big part of what we were trying to do when I was the CEO of Merck was to get our R&D organization turned around to get it to be one that could be consistently productive and successful. So as the CEO, it was really about bringing in the right leaders into the R&D organization who had the skill sets and the sense of purpose and rigor and, and all of those kinds of things that are important. From a broader standpoint, it was really about making sure that the company had the right pace and intensity and operational cadence because we had gotten to the point where if numbers were missed, you had to have a really good reason for it, (laughs) but you didn't necessarily have to hit it. And so we had to bring back that sense of, yeah, it's great to have this mission out there, but we've got to actually deliver on the things that we say we're going to deliver. Can can I ask, you talk about the importance of mentorship in your life. How did you find the talent within the organization? How did you cultivate that talent and shape your top team over the years of your tenure? In a pharmaceutical company, I would say you have a lot of important people, but what's most important is the scientific leadership. Because at the end of the day, we are a product-oriented company. And again, in order to be successful, you need real scientific breakthroughs. And one of the most important things I did early in my tenure was to try to figure out who should be my new head of R&D. I couldn't make that decision, so I went to Roy Vagelos, who helped me assemble a team of top scientific leaders, of which Roger Perlmutter was one. And we together started looking across the industry and, and asking ourselves who would be the right kind of leader. But the point I'm trying to make is I was not able myself to make that choice. I also recruited Rob Davis, who's now the CEO of Merck, my successor, as our CFO. Similarly, I asked a lot of people who I respected. I asked them, who who would you recommend to me? From within the company, I made a real commitment to trying to develop people in the middle of the organization who I thought could be senior leaders inside the company. And one of the things that I did was I decided to have as my chief of staff, someone who was an up and coming person for 12 to 18 months. And uh, we were able to bring forward a bunch of people who became great leaders in our company 
who would have otherwise sort of had to work their way incrementally up the ladder, giving them that exposure to the CEO's office, I believe was a positive thing. And I believe it because, again, I came at 37, 38 and worked for Roy Vagelos. And I know that that completely changed the trajectory of my career. One of the things that other CEOs we've talked to about their team and, and talent, compelled by one of their quotes, which is, it's not about a team of stars, it's about a star team. Mm -hmm. And it feels, in listening to you, that you assembled a star team, a team that worked well together, collaborated well together. Not at the beginning. So I think it's important to recognize that if you have a bunch of really talented people uh, working together, they're not necessarily going to automatically like each other or want to work together. We're all humans, and by the time people get to a certain stage in their careers and have been successful, they're sort of, in some ways, set in their own ways. So I think one of the hardest things for the CEO is to assemble a team of talented individuals and then try to create an environment in which they want to work together effectively. The word team is an interesting word because Sometimes they're not actually operating as a team in the way like a, a soccer team operates, but they have to work together for the common good. So we used to talk about the commonwealth, the common good, the enterprise. And the question was, is the person taking actions and behaving in a way that puts Merck first rather than themselves or their area? That was basically the test that I applied. Is that person doing what's in the best interests of patients? Are they doing what's in the best interests of Merck as an enterprise? And as we began to do that and reward people for taking those actions, and, and we made a few changes for people who couldn't do that, I think the team began to understand what got people rewarded and what got people recognized. And then I think that caused people to actually work better together, or at least I would say, work more in concert for the benefit of Merck. We didn't all have to like each other. We didn't all have to go out and have drinks after work. But we all had to understand why we were there together and what it was that Merck was trying to achieve in the world. You also talked a little bit earlier, you said, you know, people weren't always delivering against commitments, the accountability. In large companies, process can be so important. Were there certain processes that you re reinforced? Were there certain, I don't know, a couple that you really anchored in as really helping shape the culture of the company? So one of the things that we did is when I came in, the operating grid was, I thought, incredibly complicated, had too many things in it. And also, divisions were also being recognized for how the division performed. So we did two things. We shrunk the operating grid down to three things, right, that everybody could understand. Top line, bottom line, pipeline. Okay, And we stopped rewarding people for how their division performed. You know, my first year as CEO, I remember saying to everybody when people submitted their own divisional scorecards, isn't this interesting? The divisions all did better than Merck. <laughs> how is that possible? <laughs> right? And I think when people saw that, they realized, again, the point about the enterprise, we should all live and die with the enterprise. So that was the first thing, is simplifying the performance grid. The second thing was creating an operational cadence so that we were meeting on a regular basis, going through 
kind of what was going well and not going well inside the company. And I was much more interested in what wasn't going well than what was going well. And so with the help of Rob Davis, who's my CFO, who's now the CEO, we put in together these monthly meetings where we would go through sort of the most important operational things. Again, simplifying the grid helped because then it told you what you should be focusing on in the operational area. Yeah. You've talked a lot about talent and obviously talent in your team. Merck's got tens of thousands of employees. How did you think about talent more broadly in the institution? So if you're a science-based company that's in the business of inventing transformational medicines, you can't do that unless you can recruit, retain, promote top scientific talent. The strategy you could say is invent a drug, make a drug, sell a drug. Well, you can't make it and you can't sell it if you don't invent it. <laughs> so a lot of my focus was around ensuring that the Merck Research Labs returned to a, uh, a situation where repeated success was something that they, we could expect from them. The success around Keytruda, uh, Roger would say if he were here, is, is that he recruited Roy Baines and Roy Baines recruited a team around him of people who were terrific at developing immuno-oncology drugs. And so I just want to make the point that it's not a generic issue. It's really around the specifics of what it is that you were trying to do. Merck was not a cancer company. We had no cancer drugs before Keytruda. So that was bringing in a bunch of people with skill sets and medical experience and scientific experience that wasn't resident in the company at all. Right? That's huge culture change in huge itself. Huge culture change yeah. in and of itself, yeah. right? Yeah. We were a chronic care medicine company. We, not only did we not have oncology drugs, we also weren't a biologics company. We were a small molecule company. And so this was a fundamental change in the culture by bringing those people in. But to try to answer your question, it's really about, first of all, ensuring that you have the right leaders running all the critical areas inside the company. And then the other thing that we were able to do with respect to the senior people was to ensure that the entire senior leadership team made judgments about the people coming up in the organization that were the most important people. In other words, not taking one manufacturing person's advice as to who the people were, but also going over and asking the marketing people, how effective is this person as an enterprise leader? How as effective is this person as a people leader? So the second thing we did was making sure that the talent reviews happened on a regular basis. They were part of the business reviews as opposed to just something that you did on the side. And to ensure that the fruits of those individual talent reviews were brought into the senior team so everybody else had a chance to see how those people were being evaluated by their divisional or staff group leaders. You also led an enterprise that was very decentralized and very global. Yes. So I just wondered if you had any reflections on how you managed, you know, just the, the diversity and complexity of it's a, great a decentralized organization that big it's a great and that's spread out. That's a great question. So let me talk a little bit about my philosophy about this, yeah. right? A company like Merck that is as globally complex and interdependent as it is, the only way in which this company can be run effectively is for the CEO to delegate power. 
there's no way I could make all the judgments that were necessary in all the critical markets around how to bring important drugs to market. So I believed very much in pushing decisions down. I, I thought the concept of the pyramid was the wrong way to think about a company like Burr. I thought it was better to be almost an inverted pyramid. And I would stand on stages because that hadn't been what CEOs had said before me and say to them, if I could do one thing I often said, it would be to convince Merck people that they already know the answer. When I first became CEO, we were having trouble manufacturing some of our key vaccines. And the street was very unhappy because we had some great vaccines like Gardasil for HPV, and, and we weren't able to manufacture them at scale. And the manufacturing people felt under tremendous pressure. So I went and visited some of the top manufacturing people. We had lunch, and at lunch, people started asking me what I thought about the, the engineering challenges. I finally said to one of those guys, do you want the real answer or you want the made-up answer? <laughs> and gullible person said, I want the real answer. And I said, okay, here's the real answer. I find engineering sort of boring. I said, at the end of the day, though, I'm a lawyer by training. And I said, how would you have felt if I stood up in front of the company and asked the CEO how I should have managed those cases? You would say, you're the lawyer. You're supposed to know that. So I said, you're the engineers. You're supposed to know that. The reason I did that is because a lot of times in companies, CEOs think they're supposed to make the decisions. And they clearly, I was in the org chart. Who was the farthest person from the customer? Me. Who was the farthest person from the manufacturing line? Me. Who was the farthest person from the research bench? Me. So why should I be making decisions when I am not necessarily the person who's equipped to make those decisions? I think I feel very strongly about this point. I would say the CEO's job is to be a compass, not a GPS, okay? If you need that level of detail, that's not the CEO's job. I had a career before I came to Merck, and it was in a professional services firm, not unlike McKinsey. And as a young lawyer, the senior partners, their ethos was hurry up and grow up so you can service your clients. Then I came into a corporation that had a hierarchy. And the implicit idea was, wait for your boss to tell you what to do. And I think that companies that are successful with the kind of rapid change that we're seeing around the world are companies that equip their people, their customer-facing people, to make decisions. They're technical people. They're scientific people. If you've got people waiting to be told what to do, there's just no way with the complexity of an organization like Merck and the environment outside Merck that this is the right decisions can be made. I love it. I, I do remember when we interviewed Frank Blake, who was the legendary CEO of Home Depot, in his office, he actually had the inverted pyramid. Yeah. And that's the way he thought about his organization. So, Can I tell you a quick story? And so Keytru is our biggest drug. Folks at Merck did a fabulous job taking this drug and developing it to what it is today. But it wasn't invented at Merck. It was invented at Organon, which was acquired by Shearing Plow, and then Merck, of course, acquired Shearing Plow. 
One evening in, at uh, a meeting in San Francisco, I happened to run into the two young scientists who were working on the discovery part of Keytruda. They told me an interesting story. They said, you know, our bosses didn't believe in this PD-1 program, and they kept urging us to stop. And I said to these two young guys, well, why didn't you stop? And they sort of laughed, and they said, because our bosses were more like uh, portfolio managers than scientists. And we knew what we were doing, and we knew the potential. So I would tell that story inside Merck, and I would say, imagine if these two young guys had given up because they were told to give up. What would, have, what would the world be like? Yeah. So you really want to create a culture where you're encouraging others to do exactly what they did? Yes. You don't want people to, to go off and do things that are not going to be productive just for the sake of doing them. But you also want the people who are closest to the scientific issue to make the fundamental decisions. This brings us to the end of the first part of Vic and Steve's conversation with Ken Frazier. We hope you enjoyed it, and we encourage you to tune in for part two next week when Ken shares his candid reflections on several crises that emerged while he was CEO and how he and Merck successfully navigated them. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at itsr at mckinsey.com. That stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. With many thanks to everyone who's already done so. We really appreciate all your comments and feedback. Please do keep them coming. And if you enjoyed this episode and would like to subscribe, just follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available at mckinsey.com ITSR where you can easily search our prior podcasts across six major themes and also access written transcripts of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, sign up on our practice page at mckinsey.com SCF for strategy and corporate finance. Follow us on Twitter at MCK strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey strategy and corporate finance practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the strategy room.